If you have your Bibles, uh, turn to, this is going to be complicated tonight. You ready? Isaiah 58 and Matthew chapter 6. We're going to be back and forth between Isaiah and Matthew tonight. So you're going to want to have a finger in both spots and uh, don't let the finger, you know, leave either spot until I tell you it's okay. Otherwise, you're not going to know how to follow along. But as we start, let me tell you about a movie that came out in 2014. The movie is called Believe Me. It wouldn't surprise me if you've never heard of it. It had minimal critical acclaim, which is a nice way of saying it wasn't a very good movie. Um, The bright spot of the movie is a cameo from both Lecrae and Ron Swanson. Not sure why, but both of them in the same movie. It's actually a, a satire, really a mockery of a Christian subculture. I haven't seen the whole movie, so I am in no way endorsing it. Um, But let me tell you a little bit about the plot line. It follows a main character whose name, unfortunately, is Sam. And I did not do the same thing my senior year of college that this guy did. He finds himself senior year, three weeks, four weeks away from graduating, walks into the dean's office and discovers that his scholarship had ran out and he is $9,000 in the red. And for him to graduate, he's got to pay the rest of his tuition bill. Otherwise, they're not going to let him walk. He won't get his diploma. He has his eyes set on grad school, law school in the fall. And unless he can come up with $9,000 in three weeks, his whole future is is shattered. So he sits down with his fraternity brothers, and they're trying to figure out how they can come up with money that quickly. And they come up with what they thought was an incredible idea. They think, why don't we start a scam charity. And we can go around to Christians and get them to donate to build wells in Africa, and we'll just take the money and we'll pocket it and we'll pay for our tuition. Well, the plan goes off in the movie without a hitch. And they create this scam charity. This guy becomes a motivational preacher, speaker, who's on this Christian tour, who dresses like a Christian, acts like a Christian, and he says things like, this is God's work, or give in proportion to your faith, or are you ready to change the world? And all these people pull out their checkbooks, their credit cards, and they donate thousands of dollars to a charity organization that doesn't even exist, using the money to pay his tuition bill and sustain the stereotypical fraternity lifestyle of himself and his friends. And it worked. He was a fraud and he was a fake. Now, I certainly hope that no one who walked in the door tonight is faking Christianity to make a profit, but I'm convinced that most of us know how to behave and act like a Christian. You know what I'm talking about. You listen to 89Q. You put the family of Christian fish on the back of your car, right? You go to church. You leave gospel tracks in the pocket of the airplane. You go to Life Fest at least every other year. And, you know, you post pictures of your Bible with your Starbucks open on Instagram at least once a week, right? We know how to act like a good Christian. So often we've watered down what it means to be a follower of Christ. Being a Christian is reduced to going to church. Being a Christian is reduced to external religious behavior. Being a Christian means that we go to church at least a couple times a month. You know how to behave like a Christian. You know how to dress like a Christian. You know how to walk like a Christian, whatever that looks like. But those priorities are pretty low on God's list. I wonder how many of us are using the wrong metric to measure our spiritual maturity. 
The most common way that people measure their maturity, their sanctification, is by external religious behavior, by public piety, by things like going to church or public service or public prayer or looking like a good Christian in public. But religious behavior only matters when it comes from the right heart. Empty religious rituals accomplish nothing in our relationship with God. So we're in Isaiah 58, not an easy text, a hard text to look at tonight, where God helps us understand that he wants something deeper than just public piety, external religious behavior. It's been a while since we've been in Isaiah, so allow me to just remind us of of our context. Isaiah, he's the big dog of the major prophets. He ministered from 740 to 700 BC. That was 40 years of ministry, and he served at a pretty tumultuous time for the people of Israel. The two southern tribes of Judah specifically was the people that he ministered to, and it was rocky. There was problems going on all around the world, and the Assyrians, the world's superpower, were literally knocking on their door this this close from wiping Jerusalem off the face of the earth. We learned about that in in chapters 36, 37, 38, and 39. We studied that about six weeks ago. But we see that for Isaiah, the people's hearts often followed the leader, that when Ahaz was king, they did this, but when Hezekiah was king, spiritually, they did this. It was up and down throughout most of the book. And the New Testament writers were experts in Isaiah. Jesus was an expert in Isaiah. The New Testament writers quote or allude to Isaiah more than any other book in the Old Testament. And We see that tonight in a pretty close connection, at least in three spots between Isaiah 58 and three different sermons that Jesus preaches in the gospel of Matthew. So with that, let's just start in Isaiah 58, verse one. Cry aloud, don't hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, the house of Jacob, their sins. Pause. Who's talking? What do you think? Who's speaking? It's God. Yeah, and who is God talking to? He's talking to Isaiah. You know what he does? He's outlining Isaiah's sermon. This is called preaching cheating, where God goes to Isaiah and says, this is what I want you to preach. Sounds nice, right? I wish God did that to me. But when you keep reading the content of his sermon, it doesn't sound quite as nice anymore. Verse two, yet... They seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you not see it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Okay, we've got to unpack what's happening in this, this couple verses. Verse two, it says, they seek me daily. They delight to know my ways. This is an external behavior. This is an internal They're acting like good Jews. They're behaving in a religious way, but in no way does it reflect what's going on in their heart. And then verse three, it's actually quoting the people. They're saying, God, we fasted and you didn't see it. We've humbled ourselves, which would be an aspect of fasting, and you've taken no knowledge of it. You see what they're asking? They're expecting that their religious behavior, in this case, fasting, will give them an automatic audience with the Almighty, but they were wrong. Now, for us to understand this text, we have to understand fasting, because fasting is mentioned over and over again in Isaiah 58. We use the term broadly today, don't we? Fasting can describe anything. I'm going to take a social media fast, or I'm going to take a chocolate fast, or the worst kind, I'm going to have an ice cream fast, right? Or some people even describe a special diet called the 
Daniel fast, where they just eat vegetables and that's it. Our world uses the word fasting broadly. That's not how the Bible uses the word. Fasting in Scripture is specific. It's narrow. It means to abstain, not eat food for a spiritual purpose, usually to pray, and use the hunger pains to remind us to pray, to replace the time that we would be eating with time in prayer. It's a very narrow definition of fasting, and we see fasting mentioned over and over again in Scripture. So, Fasting is mentioned that often. How many times do you think God commands the people of Israel to fast in the first five books of the Old Testament in the Torah? Any guesses? Just once. Anybody know the day? Once a year? Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. That was the day when the high priest would take the blood of the sacrifice and he would enter into the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, the place where God's presence symbolically and literally resided. And he would take the blood, he would pour the blood on the top of the ark. Remember the, in the ark, there are the Ten Commandments. Above the ark, that's where God's presence dwelled. And as God looked down upon the Ten Commandments in the ark, he would have to look through the blood. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. It was a picture of the blood that would be shed on our behalf when Jesus died on the cross. So God commanded the people of Israel once a day on the day of atonement to fast as a day of solemn remembrance of the atonement of their sins. Then as we look at the rest of the Old Testament, fasting happens again and again and again. It, it was often something that, something that accompanied sorrow. When someone important would die, like a king, they would have a day of fasting. Or think of King David as... His infant son was on the brink of death. He fasted for many days on end. Think of Esther. When Haman pronounced a disastrous judgment on the Jews, they called a fast of the entire nation. Or Ezra, when he was coming back after exile, he fasted. We see over and over again, fasting is an example in the Old Testament of mourning, of sobriety, of prayer, but ultimately of repentance. But then Jesus talks about fasting in the New Testament. It's actually a sermon Andrew just preached through in the Sermon on the Mount. If you have your finger in Matthew 6, look at verse 19. But keep a finger in Isaiah 58. We'll be right back. Listen to how Jesus describes fasting. Don't lay up for yourselves. Nope, that's not right. 16. Not sure why I had that one circled in my Bible. And when you fast, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they receive their reward. But when you fast, notice Jesus doesn't say if you fast. Interesting. He says, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your washing may not be seen by others, that your father, but by your father who's in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus is describing the same thing that's happening in Isaiah's day. It's happening in Jesus' day. There's these religious people. Jesus calls them the hypocrites. They're the ones who want everyone to know that they're fasting, right? They show up in the public square, they show up at the temple, and they clearly have not eaten anything for days. And they want everyone to know that they're mourning because they want to look holy. What does Jesus say? They've received their reward. That's not the type of fasting that God desires. Because for the people of Israel— or for Jesus' audience, and I would argue for us today, fasting is kind of like that apex Christian virtue. Like, if someone is a real Christian, they're fasting. 
That's when you know someone's legit in their faith. And sometimes, at least in Jesus' day, in Isaiah's day, it became a public spectacle of public piety. They wanted to demonstrate to everyone and demonstrate to God that they were holy, that they were religious. But look back at verse 3 of Isaiah 58. Isaiah quotes the people and says, Why have we fasted and you not see it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Pause. Don't you see what they're saying? They're saying, God, look at us. I'm fasting. I'm a devout Jew. I'm the best of the best. I'm demonstrating my allegiance to you by not eating any food. I'm extreme. I'm religious. So God, why aren't you answering my prayer? Why are the Assyrians still knocking on our door? Why are our enemies tearing down our walls? Why aren't you blessing us? Why is my life not going the way that I want it to go? That's what they're saying. You see what this is, right? This is classic retribution theology. I do for God and God does for me. That's our first principle tonight is reject retribution theology. I do for God and he does for me. It's all over scripture. It's often viewed in the negative. If I do evil, then God punishes me. We see it all throughout the book of Job. Now, could our personal suffering be the result of personal sin in our life? Yes. But must our suffering be the result of sin in our life? No. Just because someone is suffering, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's the result of their sin. It's not because God is punishing them necessarily. I would argue it's not even usually the case as we look at the New Testament. But then in Matthew chapter 7, there we go, we're back to Matthew. Flip over to Matthew 7. When Jesus actually talks about retribution theology, a this for that sort of theology from the opposite angle. And to me, it seems like he has Isaiah 58 in his back pocket when he gets in the next chapter of the Sermon on the Mount. This is probably the hardest paragraph in the entire Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 7, verse 21. Follow along with me. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Yeah, that might be the most challenging, difficult paragraph in the entire Sermon on the Mount. And before we start trembling, asking the question, am I the one, am I one of those people that are going to cry that out on the last day? Before we start asking that question, I, I need us to make two observations first. Did you notice the plural in verse 22? I couldn't prove that it's significant, but I think that it is. Did we not prophesy in your name? It seems to me like they thought they were in because they were part of the club. They thought they were in because they were part of the community. They saw what everybody else was doing and they just attached themselves to the movement, but they didn't have a genuine relationship with God themselves. But second, and far more important, did you catch the retribution theology? I do religious things and then God must bless me. Where did they put their confidence in their eternal salvation? Their own religious behavior, their own righteous works. Look at how good I am. Look how righteous I am. I prophesied. I cast out demons. I did all these good works. Therefore, God has to let me into heaven. That's their logic. 
they handed Jesus their resume, their resume of good works. Our good works are never enough to gain entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Even our righteous behavior is like a filthy rag before God's holiness. We're not saved by works. We're saved by the work of Christ. We're saved by grace through faith. We're saved by Jesus' perfect righteousness who took our unrighteousness on himself when he died on the cross. If you walked in the door tonight and you thought that your religious behavior was enough to get you into heaven, I've got some bad news for you. You won't measure up. You can't measure up. You can't be holy enough. You can't be pious enough. You can't be good enough. You need Jesus. You need to humble yourself, cry out to God, and ask him to be merciful to you, a sinner. You have to, by faith, believe that when Jesus died and rose, that he paid the penalty for your sin once and for all. You have to, by the power of the Holy Spirit, repent. That means to turn away from your old way of life and follow Jesus. Don't trust in your own religious behavior to get you in the door. It's not going to work. You need Jesus. But even after we believe in Christ for our salvation, I believe that we can still struggle, at least to some extent, with this retribution theology mindset. Have we ever used religious behavior as a bargaining chip with God? It sounds like this. God, look at me. I've served in Generation 180 all year. Why can't you give me that relationship that I've been asking for? Or, God, haven't you noticed that I've been at Young Adults every week for the last four weeks? then why is my life still in shambles? Or how about this? God, I just shared my faith with my coworker and they, they even said they're gonna come to church with me sometime. Then why aren't you giving me that raise that I've been asking for? Have we ever used our religious behavior as a bargaining chip with God? God, look how faithfully I've served you. Why can't you remove that thorn from my life? It's not fair. See, that's modern-day retribution theology. I do this for God, therefore he must bless me. It's a this-for-that relationship. It's one of transactional convenience. It's what we see in Matthew or in Isaiah chapter 58. It's living life with the following posture, life for God. I do these things for God, and he'll bless me. It's the wrong perspective on our relationship with God. I'm convinced that our religious behavior is not as important to God as we often think it is. In Isaiah 58, look at verses 4 and 5. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose, a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed, to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this fast a day acceptable to the Lord? The answer to those rhetorical questions is no, because we see the, the nature of their fast. Even look at the second half of verse 3. Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure. You oppress all of your workers. You see what he's saying? The day of their fast, they look like they're doing a good job. They, they look like they're being religious, but they're seeking their own pleasure. In other words, they're going to the temple to worship God, but they're, 
doing their own business dealings. They're trying to advance their own profit. They're not focusing at all on the Lord on their day of worship. They're focusing completely on themselves. Meanwhile, they're taking their hired hands, their fellow Jews that are working for them in the field. They're forcing them to work seven days a week. They're not even giving them their right as God's people to a day of rest. They're oppressing their workers while they themselves are being selfish with the Sabbath. From the outside, they looked righteous. But as we understand their motivation, their hearts were anything but close to God. So if God isn't looking for a public display of piety, then what's he looking for? What does he want? Well, maybe consider the following illustration. Think as a dad, what is going to bring me more joy? Scenario A, I come home from work, and because mom said no to a cookie, you know, Matthias is doing all of these things for me, cleaning the dishes and doing the laundry, just so that he can get what he wants. Or, scenario B, I come home from work, and Matthias is on the back porch with a huge smile on his face, ready to give me a hug and say, Dad, I'm glad you're home. How was your day? Scenario B is going to bring me more joy as a dad, isn't it? That's an easy answer. If you have a relationship with God, he's your father. He's not a boss. He's not a dictator. He's not your manager. He's your dad. And as your dad, he doesn't just want you to do stuff for him. He wants you. He wants a relationship with you. He wants your affection. He wants your attention. He wants your heart, not just empty religious rituals. Empty rituals don't demonstrate love, demonstrate a genuine relationship. They come from the wrong place, a desire either to look religious for everyone else or to try to get from God what we want from him. That's the wrong motivation. So then what does God desire out of us? Well, I think he outlines that pretty clearly in our passage. Look at verse 6 in Isaiah 58. The answer to the rhetorical questions changed from a no to a yes here in these two verses. Verse 6, is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps, the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. God was not content with empty religious rituals. He wanted obedience because the people, the the Jews, they were abusing the poor in their midst. They were oppressing their hired hands. They were taking advantage of the weak. They were enslaving the underprivileged. They were hoarding food for themselves while their brother or sister was going hungry. They were refusing to care for those who didn't have homes They were denying clothes to people without. They even hid their face from their own flesh, which means that when a family member had a high need, they would just throw up their hands and say, yeah, I'm not going to help you. They needed to exchange public piety for personal obedience. That's our second principle tonight. Exchange public piety for personal obedience.
there was a giant disconnect for the people of Israel between their public piety and their personal obedience. There was a disconnect between their religious behavior and the way they lived their lives. So then how do we know? How do we know if our religious behavior is truly the outflow of a genuine, a real relationship with God or just hollow and empty piety? Look at the rest of the week. Are we obedient Tuesday through Saturday? Righteous living is more important than religious ritual. You don't get extra credit just for coming to church. You know, when I consider a disconnect between public piety, religious behavior, and the heart, obedience, I can't help but think of the American South before the Civil War. There's a reason that we call the South the Bible Belt. There's churches on every corner, just like there's bars on every corner in Wausau. They're everywhere. But before the Civil War, slavery was an acceptable cultural norm in the South, even within the church, even within Protestant churches. Even within the top two Protestant denominations, what still exists today with incredible influence, churches within these two denominations, they adopted pro-slavery theology, where they actually used the Bible to defend the American institution of slavery. I'll be honest with you, that is a garbage hermeneutic. Garbage. You can't take God's word and somehow use it to prove what existed in America for hundreds of years. You can't do it. Read a text like we read tonight. God hates slavery, and he hated what we had in our country for hundreds of years. But we had men, women, families that would come to church on Sunday morning in their Sunday best to worship God, and then they would go back to the plantation, to the farm the rest of the week, and they would participate in one of the darkest evils in American past. How? I don't know. But it's kind of sobering, isn't it? I hope that it might cause you and I to pray something like, Lord, if there's a blind spot like that in my life, please expose it. And give me the courage not to ignore it. For the people of Israel, slavery and oppression, abusing the underprivileged in their midst, it was what we call an acceptable sin. Slavery in America was what we call an acceptable sin for hundreds of years. So I wonder what what are our acceptable sins that we need to repent of as individuals, as a young adult family, as a church, even as evangelicalism as a whole. That's our third principle tonight, repent of acceptable sins. If you still have your finger in Matthew, turn to Matthew 25. I picked out 
probably the three most intense, two of the three most intense passages in all of Matthew to look at tonight, because I'm actually convinced that Jesus is playing on Isaiah 58 when he's reading through these. But Matthew 25 is the end of the Olivet Discourse, and this is what we call an intense conclusion to a sermon. Look at verse 41. Jesus, I think, is talking about himself here. Isaiah 25, 41. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not welcome me in. I was naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and didn't minister to you? And then he'll answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. That sounds a little bit like verses six and seven from our passage, doesn't it? It sounds eerily similar to me. This text is brutal. It's sobering. Because think for a moment how we like to measure our spiritual health. We measure our spiritual health and religious behavior, first public and then private. Did I read my Bible? Did I pray? Am I going to church? Am I serving at church? Am I denying X, Y, or Z private sin in my life? Or have I fasted in the last three months? If I've done that, then I'm a real Christian. Now, let me be clear. Those aren't bad things. (laughs) Those are all really good things. God wants both public and private piety. And spiritual disciplines certainly indicate a certain level of spiritual health. But Jesus and Isaiah are clear in these passages that there's an even greater manifestation of the presence of the Spirit in our life. There's an even higher metric, a more important metric for our spiritual maturity than piety. One of the greatest indicators of our spiritual health is not religious behavior, but how we love people. Let me say that again. One of the greatest indications of our spiritual health is not religious behavior, but how we love people. You know, as I studied through Isaiah 58 the last two weeks, that just hit me like a brick. It's like, how often do I measure my own spiritual health wrong? How often do I think I'm a good Christian because I read the Bible today, or I prayed today, I worked through my prayer journal today, I'm serving at church today? We rarely, I rarely think of Christian maturity in terms of how I'm treating, how I'm loving other people. But that's Matthew 25. That's Isaiah 58. Now in our text in Matthew 25, Jesus is not saying that the people earned salvation by what they did. No, they indicated by their behavior that they did not have a relationship with God in the first place. Their own rejection of the poor and destitute and needy revealed they didn't have a new heart, which is why we need to avoid the band-aid fixed. Instead of just trying to do better, And our love for God needs to motivate our love for others. The experience of forgiveness from our Heavenly Father motivates our forgiveness of others. Our love for Jesus overflows into love for others. Instead of just trying to do more better and love people better, the first place we start is in our connection to the vine, is in our relationship with God. Now, even after we start there, 
I'm convinced that there might be some acceptable sins that have crept into the American church, specifically within our young adult family. The list of acceptable sins could be long. Some people have way too long a leash in terms of immorality or lust, deceit or falsehood, even idolatry. But our list of acceptable sins tonight is going to fall in a specific category, the same category outlined in Isaiah 58 and in Matthew 25, specifically how we treat other people. Both inside the family and outside the family. Three things, not an exhaustive list, but at least a couple acceptable sins. Here's the first, selfishness. Selfishness. I'm tempted to be selfish with my time, my talents, and my treasures. I like to be generous on Sam's terms, but if someone else tries to dictate the terms of my generosity, I get a little prickly. You know what I mean? Because I want to share what I want to share on my time. And when I see someone in need, I'll second-guess their motives. They don't actually want food. They want to use that money to buy alcohol. Or think of all the things they probably did to get in that position. I like to forget what Jesus said in Matthew 5.42 in the Sermon on the Mount. Give to the one who asks you. Do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Hmm. Living a Sam-centered life, thinking of myself first, it's not just culturally acceptable, it's culturally preached. God desires that we lay aside our selfishness to reflect the selflessness of Christ. Here's the second acceptable sin, power. Power. Unfortunately, we've confused American culture with Christianity far too often. In American culture, you can see it pretty clearly in politics, We're tempted to build our own kingdoms where we rule on the throne of our own lives, seeking our own greatness, whatever that might look like. Financial greatness, influence, impact, respect, power. I'm going to be great. I'm going to have power. I'm going to have influence. And I wish we saw more believers choose downward mobility instead of upward mobility. Instead of buying the house at the top of the budget, what would it look like to buy something well below the budget to live generously with their finances. Instead of moving to a home in the safe neighborhood, what would it look like to move in the neighborhood in transition, to be a light in the community, to live on mission? What would it look like instead of buying the nicest car to buy something middle of the road, to be able to use finances with generosity? What would it look like to seek less prestige at the office and instead of turning in 65-hour work weeks to climb the corporate ladder, say, no, I'm going to cap it at 40, 45 hours so I can be home with my family and that I can serve in the church. It's not popular in our culture, is it? Because our culture preaches greatness. Our world does not celebrate humility. And unfortunately, American Christianity often doesn't either. Christians can be obsessed with celebrity pastors, celebrity politicians who are anything but humble and seek to build a kingdom of self rather than a kingdom of Jesus. We need to reject the temptation towards power and exchange it for a spirit of humility. Here's a third, exclusivism. Exclusivism. This one fits specifically to our young adult family. I see this far too often on Monday nights. You know, I've been around young adults longer than almost all of you. And I'll be honest, 
it feels to me like young adults today is as clicky or exclusive as it's ever been. It's hard for me to see. Stories of someone coming up to a group of four or five young adults at the very end of the night, specifically inviting two to go out to dinner while ignoring the other three. Or watching two young adults get up and move from their table at 6.20, leaving someone brand new all by themselves because their friend sat at another table. Or seeing somebody new or even a regular in our young adult family sit alone at a table for 15, 20 minutes before a young adult starts without having one person come and talk to them. These things, they stem from a root of pride. I'm better than you, so I'm not going to welcome you into the family. We want young adults to be a place that's warm and welcoming and hospitable. Not something I can do by myself. And I appreciate so many of you that are already doing this so well. Let's take the next step to be a family that's not exclusive but inclusive. We don't need any more Christian clubs. Well, that list could keep going, couldn't it? And we're going to have time in our small groups even tonight to unpack some of those blind spots in our life. We all need to invite a brother or sister into our life who can expose those blind spots. There's a reason they're called blind spots. You can't see them yourself. We need somebody else. We need the Holy Spirit to point those out for us. We need somebody that we give blanket, absolute permission to call those out in our life when we can't see them. Because often we rank our metric for sanctification in public piety, personal piety, like Bible reading, and love for others. What our text tonight does completely inverted it. I think our text tonight is clear. To God, the most important is our love for others. And you see, we can't divorce that from our love for God. We like to compartmentalize our life. I was talking to Jim Messerly about this text yesterday, and he, he, he said something so insightful. Um, he was talking about the end of 1 Thessalonians, one of the easiest verses to memorize. The Bible says, pray continually, pray without ceasing. We can all memorize that one. And Jim said, you know, when I'm praying continually, when I'm continually talking to God, then I walk daily with his eyes, with his perspective, that we can't divorce our love for God with our, from our love for people, because our love for God is going to transform how we love other people. It's not this, it's this, isn't it? So I love how Isaiah finishes Isaiah 58. I read the depressing half, and I would be amiss if I didn't share at least the end of Isaiah's sermon. Because I think we get a glimpse into God's heart. If you still have a finger in Isaiah 58, verse 8. If you obey, if you follow God with your heart, if you reject the public piety and love others, love God, verse 8, then... Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Go down to verse 11. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places. Make your bones strong, and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters don't fail. 
and your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight and a holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways, not seeking your own pleasure, not talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord. And I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I'll feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. You know, there's way too much there for us to unpack, especially when we start digging into some of the old covenant, new covenant distinctions. It adds a little bit of complexity to these promises. I believe that the specific fulfillment of these promises the healing, the restoration of the nation, that applied to the people of Israel underneath the old covenant. In other words, I don't believe that if we obey God and that we love others, that God promises to bless our nations like a, like, bless our nation like a watered garden and restore our broken walls. Instead, promises that apply to Israel in a literal earthly sense now at least in some way apply to us as God's people in more of a spiritual and eternal sense. So without unpacking each of those promises, here's what this conclusion of Isaiah's sermon gives us. It gives us a glimpse of God's heart and what he wants for his people. God is not a punitive dictator who's looking to punish. He's the loving creator who longs for the worship of his people. And if we honor him with our heart and with our life, he promises a rich and a fruitful relationship with himself. He promises blessing. And he even promises that when we do things his way, did you catch that in verse 14? That when we follow the Sabbath, then you shall take delight in the Lord, verse 14. Interesting that there's times in our life where we're not necessarily going to have the desire to run after God. Sometimes it's going to feel like a duty, but what's the promise? That when we engage in the discipline, when we run after the Lord, He's going to turn the duty to delight. That's verse 14. And even more than that, Isaiah helps us see that there's this intrinsic, this almost unexplainable blessing that comes not just from doing things God's way, but doing life with God. The blessing that comes from communion with our Creator. I hope this encourages you tonight, that the Creator of the universe desires a relationship with you. He wants to bless you, and He wants you to experience the joy of the greatest relationship, a relationship with him. But we have to desire, we have to understand what God desires of us. He wants your heart, not just public piety. He wants your obedience, not just your Sunday best. Let's pray. Father, I feel like I finish each one of these texts with the same line. Um, is not an easy passage. But Father, your word is, is powerful. Your word is convicting. And even tonight, we, 
want to pray for some, some bold things. We think about those blind spots. That if there's a blind spot in our lives individually, as a young adult ministry, as a church family, as even a greater subset of Christian culture, first we ask that you might reveal those to us. And then second, by the power of your Spirit, give us the courage to combat against those blind spots and to repent. And help us understand that you don't just want from us public obedience. You want holiness. You want our hearts. So may we be your people who run after you with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. And don't really care that much about what other people think of us, both inside and outside the church. So as we unpack this passage with some small group questions tonight, may you guide our time. Help us be honest and real. Help us to avoid the right answer and instead share the real answer tonight. Um, And may you allow each one of us to grow in our love for you and our love for others as we walk through the rest of our week. In Jesus' name, amen.